0: hello everyone welcome to teaching matters a podcast produced by woub public media in athens ohio i'm your host scott titsworth dean of the scripps college of communication at ohio university you know during the pandemic i felt like i've been begun every meeting uh virtual uh, mostly with the phrase let's remember to show grace to everyone who is struggling put simply the pandemic is underscored for me and that my students and my colleagues are, are really doing the best that they can under trying circumstances and that we really need to have empathy for um, that effort and what they're able to do. But um, I also know that empathy is important, not just in pandemic times. It's really something that we give with grace to everyone that we're interacting with. It's a very powerful interpersonal communication tool. My guest today is writer Jennifer Dagenhart who integrates empathy into her writings intended to help people develop greater cultural awareness and sensitivity while also learning a second language. Jen is a former middle and high school teacher of Spanish, and she's also an advocate for disrupting how we teach language skills through the prism of cultural awareness. She now teaches at UConn Stanford. Jen, thank you for so much for being on Teaching Matters.
1: Scott, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, absolutely. And and this was the podcast because of some technical difficulties that we had to try, I think, three times. Um, and I'm so glad that on the third attempt, we were able to all get connected and get this going. Um, so I think I'd like to start. Um, there's so many things about your story that I think is really interesting. And certainly empathy was one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about. But I think I'd like to start by having you Tell um, the listeners about who you are as a teacher and some of the journey that you've went through to get to where you're at as a writer and also a college teacher right now.
1: Well, that, that's, a, that's a long history, but I'll, I'll try to encapsulate it for you so um, that people are still interested by the end. <laughs> um, I uh, began my journey with Spanish as um, as an exchange student to Bolivia when I was in high school of course, um, nothing is ever planned in my life. So I had, was previously a French student in high school. So when I went to Bolivia, I was, um, you know, thrown to the wolves, so to speak with, with the Spanish language and, um, and acquired it in in the most natural way possible. And I think that really served me, um, for becoming an educator in the future, but there's a little, there's a little story to that as well. Um, and, and by traveling to Bolivia, I was able to see how, um, you know, lives that were really different from my own here, growing up in um, in New England, and um, was I I just was able to get a different perspective on on life in general, and I I loved my time in Bolivia. I loved that um, I loved the indigenous people, and that there was so much of a different history than. Um, that I was aware of, you know, and I was only 16 years old, so I, I admittedly didn't pay much attention to, uh, really what was going on, but I did keep my eyes open and obviously my ears, because I did acquire Spanish, um, uh, within the 11 months that I was in Bolivia. So when I returned, I, you know, going to college, um, I thought, oh, well, I'll continue studying Spanish and, um, and when I was, uh, required to declare a major, this is the funny part about becoming an educator. Um, I was de- required to declare a major and I, I had no idea what I wanted to do, still had no idea. And, um, and when I was asked, what will, what do you want to declare as your major? And I said, well, what do I have the most credits in? And they said Spanish. And I said, well, put that down. And <laughs> so I, I parlayed that into um, you know Spanish and Latin American dub, uh, double major, Latin American Studies double major, and you know, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, my my parents uh, were both educators, and so I grew up in that culture and and saw how much that they enjoyed their um their professions at the time you know mm-hmm. mostly i have to say by and large so so i thought well i i'll do the same thing and um and what's more fun than than teaching something i love to study spanish and and getting to interact with kids i mean i don't think there's anything better than a high school kid <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's the and, and and so for 24 years I was, um, you know, teaching high school, and I did a, a stint in in middle school for a couple of years, which um, really wasn't my um, my cup of tea. So I do like the high school student. Um, the curiosity mm-hmm. is um, is fantastic, and um, when the opportunity um, it sort of presented itself, uh, that that high school teaching and and the way of education. And what I wanted to do really wasn't jiving at the time, so I decided to, to leave um, teaching high school, and, and, and I had already begun writing, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about that too. So, <laughs> so then, um, you know, and then the college, the, the college uh, job came, came about, and so, so that's, uh, that's what I'm doing now.
0: But you know, but I'm going to go back to the Bolivia experience that you had. Um, in some of your writings, um, I, I've seen, I've heard you talk about some of the experiences that you had, including um, the family that you were with, and and actually taking part in what I recall as being sort of a an open uh, market um, where you had to you know learn how to do bartering and 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 selling goods. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe? And and maybe expand upon how that type of a language experience is a different but also really important way of learning a culture and a language, as opposed to you know using a textbook in a classroom.
1: Sure, um, it's one of my favorite stories. Actually, I um, like I said, I, I was in high school at the time, and with not too much language of Spanish language under my belt, um, my Bolivian host mom was. Um, she worked in an open air market and had a little caseta, you know, which was called a caseta there, a little booth in the market where she sold shoes. And um, every day after school, um, my host sister and I would go down to the market and and help her out. Now, I don't know what I did to help. I was probably um, being a the, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Uh, I was the attraction, so people would come and just to see, you know, because there were not that many. Um, you know, uh, light-skinned, fair-haired people in Bolivia Mm -hmm. at the time, and people would come by. And just listening, for me, was was a great language experience. And um, and I became friendly with everybody around and um, uh, all of the other, um, you know, booth owners, all who sold shoes. And I also, you know, was really witness that um, we don't have that bartering here, you know, certainly not... um, certainly not in stores in Mm -hmm. the United States, but but at, you know, flea markets and things like that, we do. But at 16, I I wasn't aware of of that. And I didn't really understand about how that bartering went on. Well, one day, um, my host mom, my host sister, and everybody I knew just went to either, you know, to purchase something else in the market, but they left me alone, and I thought, well, that's not really a good idea here. <laughs> Who's going to sell the shoes? And um, this young couple came up, and they wanted to buy a little pair of patent leather shoes for their toddler daughter, and it just happened to be there were no prices on the shoes either. There just happened to be that I knew the price of those shoes, and and I was so excited. That I could say that, and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do if they if they come back with a lower price because it, these are not my products to 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 barter, but I'll do the best I can. And um, they asked me the price, and and I told them, and I'd love to be able to tell you what it was, but I don't remember. And and the couple said okay, and they handed me over the money, and it was probably the proudest moment of of my time in Bolivia that I was able to. to um, participate in that transaction and the the just the feeling the great feeling that i had i communicated with someone without anybody's help and i sold a pair of shoes (laughs) (laughs) and i just think that you know more of those um interpersonal and um those sorts of interactions with humans are so important not only for language learning but for you know, for getting to know people on a different level. Mm-hmm. I think those are more important than, than language, because I'm sure I made, you know, thousands within that small, um, interaction made thousands of errors, but, but it got done. Yeah. It got done. So.
0: You know, I, I've had sort of two rounds at learning language, um, Spanish, uh, and I'm not very good at it, um. But one was in one was in high school in Spanish one. And then the other has been more recently when over the course of several summers, I've had the opportunity to travel to southern Ecuador and and work in some villages. Um, And I guess in reflecting on both of those experiences, my Ecuadorian experience, of course, I was an adult then is much more like what you described, where, you know, you have to go into a store and figure out how to buy toothpaste or, you know, something like that. And. And you have to be able to figure things out, even though you maybe are are woefully inexperienced with the language compared to what I recall from high school, which was re- very rule governed. And I'm sure you remember um, sitting at desks with the uh, cassette tapes or it maybe even was reel to reel tapes at that point where, you know, you had to recite things back and you got graded on it. And, and that was my experience. And I, I drew very little out of that. I, I tell those two stories because. My, my formal educational experience in learning Spanish was very rule-governed, and you had to learn it in a certain way. You had to learn certain grammar characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. And my, my Ecuadorian experience was not rule-governed. It's very practical. You say in several of your writings that you're challenged by rules. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about how the rules were um, part of the... Pedagogy of of language learning for so long, and and why you've tried to break away from that.
1: Well, I yes, I I am a rule disliker. I don't want to say hater, but I'm I'm a rule disliker for sure. And I do remember um, the same experience that you had. I had with in French class in high school with the reel to reel tapes and and having to you know spit out. He thinks it didn't make any sense, and um, to me, you know, that's not going to uh, further my language um, ac- acquisition by just repeating something into a tape that's going to be graded on or evaluated on whether or not it was said correctly, because that's not really the way language works, um, as is evidenced every single day in every country in every culture with people who misunderstand each other because of different vocabulary, different accents. Or um, or or different cultural norms because language is not just spoken; it's it's um, it's the whole you know kit and caboodle there. So um, I was and I was I was raised by my father was an English teacher and he was a grammarian for sure, and so I was you know fully entrenched in grammar, grammar, grammar for much of my um, teaching career. But, but allowing um, students to to learn from those mistakes, but finally, and it wasn't it wasn't early on; it was later on in my career when I was um, tasked with uh, educating students with uh, learning challenges. That I thought, you know, what rules are not going to apply here. They can't apply here because of the student population that I have. I need to make the experience for them as doable as possible so that they learn something because when they go out into the you know that that real world situation that nobody is going to care whether they conjugate the verb properly or not um the if they, they have an empathetic listener the empathetic listener will help the student um you know further along the conversation and that's what happens every single day with language even um even among friends, you know, who use slang, when I ask my students in class, and they come up with something, you know, when we're chatting in English quickly, um, and they say something, and you know, some slang, I don't understand, I have to say, yeah, I don't, I don't really get it, you, you got to tell me what that means, otherwise, mm-hmm. we can't, we can't continue on with the conversation, so when I was, um, um, I had the the absolute pleasure of, of my career to, to teach these students to be in class with these students who needed to learn in a different way and um, when I started the, the the writing process I we were beating beating each other up not you know not physically obviously, but I was beating myself up because they were not buying what I was selling and and they were getting bored out of their their minds in class mm-hmm. and, and I said, I, there's got to be a better way, and I said, "Well, maybe I can incorporate all of this stuff and write them a story. You know, something that will, you know, get them involved with what's going on. Maybe they don't have to learn every single word because, and and maybe too that they don't need to learn three words for pen when one will do. And so I I wrote my first book. Um, I wrote it within a week. I just it just came to me and I, and I flew, the words flew out onto the screen and I thought, oh, well, how can this, how can I engage them? And, um, it was, it was a hit. It was a hit with them. And I said, okay, well, we're going to continue with this trajectory because it's a lot more fun for me too.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the scope of the series of books that you've written, uh, and, and sort of who the intended audiences are, uh, for the books?
1: yes my first um, my first thought was to write books that would um, engage my own students and and I have um, kept that that passion you know throughout my writing career I write mostly for me and what I want to say and how it can be used by students at the high school level um, I think there they uh, I think that's the future of of um, you know, they are the future. They're the ones that are, that are most malleable. And, um, and I think the most empathetic, uh, and, and middle school students as well, but I, I know the high school student population much better. And there were, um, there were topics and themes that were never, ever brought up in conversation in regular, um, in the regular curriculum, you know, or the curriculum I was supposed to be using at the time, mm-hmm. because um, because there was so much grammar that had to be, um, you know, air quotes covered, and and I hate that term covered. Says who? I say, um, <laughs> and and there were things that I wanted students to know, and I was working in a um, predominantly upper middle class white school district, and. I wanted my students to know that life existed outside of that bubble, and there were other people that they would need to consider. And I think they knew that, you know, as a as a concept, and that that oh sure that maybe we would, would learn about that when we went to col when they would go to college and stuff like that. But but I wanted them to talk about it in class at their level mm-hmm. in high school, and so that's um, that's. How those um, those themes that were important to me became relevant and um, be, of, about which I became passionate when writing these books. So, and they still are.
0: Now, your books—I um, mean, they're they're teaching tools, but but as you mentioned before, they also reflect um, an approach that is more narrative based, meaning that you tell stories with the books as a, and use that as a vehicle for. Um, for teaching about cultural differences and, and, and also learning language. Can you explain some of the narratives that um, maybe you're really proud of in some of the books that you have so that people can get a sense of the types of stories that are told and, and used as a tool for learning?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I w- always include some um f- I write originally, the stories originally in Spanish, and uh, many of the books and many more to come have been translated and adapted to other languages, because mm-hmm. I include a lot of culture in, um, in the stories and characters of other ethnicities, just so, um, so other customs and culture can be, um, you know, presented to students. I always thought, um, while teaching high school, I thought, well, it would be great to teach about, as you, or Bolivia or Ecuador, but what are the chances of my students traveling there? Instead, I like to to bring it back to students, well, here in the United States, because the, that's the you know that was my target population and still is. Um, what about those um, the people of those ethnicities and nationalities, or what about them living here? You know, you can see that parts of their culture here in the United States. So, you know, all of my books include um, characters of those nationalities or of those um, heritages because it's, um, because that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And my first book, um, I included the, um, some racism and, and classism at a very basic level Um, just just so it's made aware to students that that these these things exist. And we were able to talk about them in very basic language. And I think, too, that when, um, as language teachers, if we allow the discussion to happen at the level of the students in their language, um, it sort of uh, removes the, it lessens the, um, the heat of the, of the, of the discussion, because people need to keep things at the level that they're able to discuss, and, mm-hmm. and at the same time, the, the language learning, language acquisition occurs, and um, so, and that was, that was one thing. I, I speak a lot about undocumented immigration, um, because I, I think that that, that was a, you know, it's been a hot button topic for for a while in mm-hmm. in most of the country, and and I never discuss politics in in the book as outright, but rather the story of politics through the characters, because um, taken taken away from people, um, you know, as we're seeing even now, politics is. It can't be separated from the actual humans that um, that are living it, and the, as soon as we forget about people that um, you know, politics affects. It's it's all downhill from there, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and so um, that is one one thing, uh, one topic that I'm I'm very passionate about. And then I started um, including uh, characters of underrepresented. Um, populations. For example, one of my earlier books um, featured uh, some gay characters. And um, from what I understand, it was the first book written with LGBTQ characters of this nature for this intended purpose. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, you know, don't quote me on this. I don't know. But that's what what people have been telling me. And I remember Uh, polling my students informally saying oh yeah maybe i should write a book with um some you know with some lgbtq characters and i saw the faces of kids who identified as such light up and i said yeah of course because they also need to see characters um they see themselves in the characters and um and and be be bolstered by by that, like oh yeah, that's me, and and I can relate more to that character because I identify with him, her, or them. So um, I'm working on my fourth book right now with um, LGBT characters, mm-hmm. and actually happens to be um, a graphic novel that um, that I'm working on with a high school student in um, in Wisconsin. So we're we're really excited about it, and I, I think people are going to be really excited as well. And one of the other, um, uh, I just uh, finished a book uh, with um, a student and a character who uses a wheelchair, and. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I want those populations to, to know that, of course, you you should see yourself in a book because that, and see yourself in a positive light, I mean, not without struggles, I mean, don't we all have them, but to, um, to realize that these people too are members of our community and um, and are no really no different than we are with all of their hopes and dreams. And so those are, those are things I'm, I'm working on and, and I, I try to tie culture in wherever I can, whether it be through their ethnicity or nationality or rather, or just culture of different places in the United States. So one of, you know, one of my books takes place in the Bronx in New York and, Uh and another takes place in, in Queens. And I, I don't write a lot about it, but I offer places up and maps for um, teachers and students to just take a look on Google Maps. I mean, what is it like? You know, go to Wikipedia, find out how is that different from where you live. Look up some some photos or videos of um, how that might be different from where you live just as an awareness. I think that that can also help an understanding of, of different people and of different places.
0: Yeah. I've, I've often thought, um, you know, since I've been a faculty member at OU, I've had opportunities to take students on trips and I've always thought that it would be so fascinating to be able, if you, if you could do it like the Star Trek transporter thing and, and just put them in the middle of a city. Um, so take the Bronx or take, you know, areas of DC, uh, San Francisco, Put them in a city and not tell, not let them know where they're at, and and have them reflect on that experience as being similar and different to where they you know live. I, I've always thought that would be fascinating because you know you know as well as I that that when you're in um, areas of some ma- major metropolitan areas that are very culturally diverse, it would be really difficult to even know that you're necessarily in the United States. And I think that's fascinating, and it's not something that people often think about, but you know, it's my experience.
1: Absolutely. And, and the converse is true. Um, for, I, I teach, you know, in Stanford, which is a fairly diverse um, city. And I don't think that my own students have the concept that in other parts of the country are not like where they live. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you mean people are, um, you know, homogeneous and, and, there, are, there isn't that, um, representation or diversity. And so I think they would, um, when I, um, one of my, one of my books takes place in the, in the Southwest U.S. and, um, one of the characters, uh, lives in in kansas and and i would show um just different images of and they said oh it's very flat there i said well yes it is (laughs) you know and i and i don't think that that's a bad thing i think it's it's a great thing just to um it might not be highbrow it might not be you know university level but it's i think it's just as important as as discussing you know really Um, tough theories and, um, and having those, those great discussions that doesn't have to take a long time. It could take 30 seconds, but I, um, I, you know, my students have, have thanked me for opening their eyes to, to different places and different people.
0: So embedded within what you just said, as well as some of the previous descriptions of your book, um, obviously, um, you know, there is a theme of empathy that runs through your writings can you can you talk about why you think that is so important and how you try to use your storytelling um to help people develop greater senses of empathy and i'm sorry for a three-part question but what why then do you think that empathy is so critical to the learning process
1: i because empathy um will allow for a discussion to take place i if we're there is no identification with another person on on any level then the conversation there will not be conversation will be halted and discussion will be halted and then i would say conflict resolution also stops right there in its tracks i happen to love people and love finding out their stories, but not everyone is like that. And I think that that approaching someone just from a different point of view and asking questions and finding out more about him or her or them is is critical. And I I think that it's important. I don't think it's just important. I think it's vital to us as human beings to be curious about other people. Because I think and it also brings um, brings us into a place of, well, if there are other points of view, then perhaps um, we're not right every single time. And not that I I suggest that we're right, you know, as individuals all the time or any time.
0: It is a town, but we're doing the work in um, villages that are about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile outside of that, that literally the homes are made out of adobe. And, and you know, one of the things that we talk with our students about is that it's really easy for particularly white Americans, um, though not all of them are white, but, but certainly privileged Americans, Um, to approach the villagers um, in a very deficit-oriented perspective. And we spend a lot of time talking with them before they even leave, you know, athens ohio about the importance of not just having empathy but having respect for the villagers because many of those villagers don't have a choice to live anywhere other than where they are but but, but some do and they choose still to live in those villages and um and and so having respect for the culture um, that those represent is is a is a large part of what we want our students to learn when they're in the field um, and to approach all their interactions and all the work that we're doing from a sense of respect and empathy is a huge part of that. And so I just really, um, I really think that if you want to learn about other cultures, you have to do so again, going back to what I said at the beginning, you have to do so with a sense of grace, you have to do so with a sense of empathy and, and not be the, um, you know, sort of the, the prototypical, um, I am approaching this from my perspective and, you know, you know, Challenge me to think otherwise, type of mindset. You really have to go in with an open mind um, and and love the people that you're with. And and I think that that's something that that clearly is a part of what you're trying to accomplish with your books as well. Um, I think that um, in addition to talking about your books, I'd also like to talk about and, and go back to some of the transitions that you've made in your career. Um, one of the interesting parts about your story is that you've had different stages to your career and. I wonder if you could talk about sort of how you go through life transitions with that same level of empathy towards, you know, what it is that you're experiencing um, that permeates your books. I mean, it's hard to go through transitions and you've, you know, you've been a, you've been a high school teacher, you've been a writer, you're a college teacher, you're still a writer. Um, how do you merge all of those things together and how do you transition through those um, in a way that's, that, that's meaningful for you?
1: Well, thank you for that question. And my my first uh, reaction was I was not always affording myself the same grace that I afford my characters or my students. And and you know a couple of the transitions were were um, terribly challenging for me. And I had to learn to um, to afford myself that same grace. And it's become easier for me to do that. And it was easier for me to do that when I looked back on the characters I created and how much grace I afforded them and how much grace I afforded my students at the time. So I would have to say that I I learned even through my own books and my own writing that, that it's, it's just, it's just part of the process. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that and, and also you know in going back to what you said about when you're taking your students um, to Ecuador, you know approaching transitions because I think that that too is a transition and mm-hmm. you know even in a in a micro sort of way that afford yourself the, the, that same grace um, and that you will not always have all of the answers and they will not be present immediately and allowing the process to unfold and allowing um, allowing the answers to come to you I do believe and this is a little woo-woo but <laughs> I do believe that the universe has our backs and um, and I think that that's that's a really good thing to not to not require that you have all the answers all the time and um, it really did help me through um, the the Transition from you know from high school teacher to writer because I you know I didn't really know if that was going to be able to sustain me. Mm-hmm. I knew it was. I knew that um, somatically it would sustain me because I I love writing these books and I I I love this part of of my life and and giving back and giving voice in this way. Um, but you know there is that financial aspect to consider which is is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, but it but it all, it has unfolded beautifully because I allowed it to happen.
0: What, um, I, I, I forgot to ask you um, when you were talking more specifically about your books, um, with respect to the audience for the books, is there a certain um, age or developmental level, maybe is even a better term to use that you're really trying to have the books be relevant for?
1: Well, like I said, I, you know, my first um, audience was, was that of out of um adolescence mm-hmm. because that was the population that i was um you know most familiar with right, right but then i um i started just writing i started writing for me and i thought you know the teachers are the ones who are um that are most aware of their own students and uh, one book might not be appropriate for one particular class for whatever reason so um i just began to write stories and um there's a there's a large push now these days to provide um free reading opportunities in the second language classroom for mm-hmm. students so so students get to choose their own book to read you know teachers having their own classroom libraries so um this was part of the rule thing i mean there are there's several authors and you know a you know, many, uh, companies and things like that, that publishers that, you know, promote these types of books and, and just because who is to say that a book is, um, is suitable for a particular student because of age, language level, um, you know, or whatever. And so I think that, um, for the most part, I'd like to include on the, you know, you know, a suggested, Reading level, a suggested language level, but but students should self-select. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: just like librarians do um, for their own populations, I think you know we as teachers can provide that um, for for students as well. And some of my characters are, are adults, some of my characters are are young kids, and and I I don't think that that should um, deter different readers from from picking up the book to read because all of these people exist in our world. I mean, we should, I'm using a, using a book this semester with my own students whose um, protagonist is, um, is nine years old. And one might think, and I've used the book before, one might think that, well, how are they going to relate to this, to this, um, to this nine-year-old girl? And, and they do, well, partially because, you know, they're the the opposite character, I, I tend to write, um, you know, not dueling, but I'm sure there's a word for it where, you know, one character, one chapter, another character, the other chapter. Sure, I'm yeah. sure there's a term. But see, that's a rule. I don't know these rules. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, she's an adult, her mom. So, you know, there's, I like to include enough in each book so you can, um, if if you don't like the theme, you'll grab on to um, uh-huh another topic or something like that so mostly um high school kids but um i've had teachers reach out and say oh i'm using this with my um with my adult learners Mm -hmm. great
0: Mm -hmm. in general um are the books intended like uh, it's been so long since i've been in a language class um and i should know how it's taught at ou and i don't but what if i was teaching spanish and i wanted to use your books would, would the books be The primary tool, would it be a companion tool or or is that language not even the right way of talking about the pedagogy that I might um, enact with my students?
1: I'm so glad you asked me about pedagogy because I know nothing about it. Um, (laughs) No, that's not true. But I think that that would be up to the teacher. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's the, the one um, pedagogy fits all. I think that whatever works for the teacher and his or her or their students, I think that that's the one that um, should be used. Mm -hmm. I happen to use them as the basis for, um, for my curriculum, because I can pull out um, from the books that I've written, I can pull out the grammar that I want to highlight. Mm-hmm. I, I supplement the books with um, with videos and podcasts and articles and and more, you know, college appropriate, college level appropriate materials. And I su- would suggest that teachers of high school can do the same thing, or middle school, you know, depending on the level of the book, um, and so i think it can be used as the basis for curriculum i think it can be used as as a supplement as a just like you know teachers are doing you know at um with the free voluntary reading is is have them pick up the book just to read to to give them something give the students something to discuss Mm -hmm. i found that in that method that that we we were taught with you know here you know repeat what I say and, you know, listen to something and repeat. I mean, it doesn't allow for um, topic of conversation. It doesn't allow for discussion. But given so many things that are happening, um, you know, teachers can evaluate or instructors can evaluate um, comprehension, reading comprehension. And if if they're able, just allow the conversation to unfold. Because really, isn't that what we want in the language classroom is to is to allow students to speak and to mm-hmm. use those skills. I mean, they're going to make mistakes. I mean, we make mistakes all the time, and they, if the if the topic is broad enough, that they can use the language they know to get something, some of their ideas across. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that's empowering to students as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, like like I said, I I, I know just enough Spanish that I can. You know get by in 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 most situations um not not fluent at all not even conversational but i can get by and what's interesting about that is that like when I'm trying to learn new words, I can, it's more important for me to be able to ask questions than it is to follow rote repetition. Like I tried to use Babbel and and apps like that and was just bored out of my mind with it. And that's not a negative review of Babbel by any stretch, but it just didn't work for me in my time, you know, line of, of needing to learn language to be able to, um, you know, do things that I wanted to do with my students. Um but, but what I found re- that was really exciting is when I would have conversations and then go on random sidetracks, like when do you start saying uh, bu- Buenas Tardes, you know, instead of Buenas Noches or, or um, dias I mean, those are questions that I want to ask that I would never be able to ask if I was following a taped um, repetition lesson. Right. And and that to me is the exciting part of learning new languages is you get to figure out what you want to figure out um, rather than following. A prescribed set of rules about what you need to learn in a certain way.
1: I I agree wholeheartedly. I, it's, it needs to unfold the way it needs to unfold for each mm-hmm. individual learner. And um, just because I provide an exhaustive list of vocabulary, which I don't, um, <laughs> for, for students, just because the instructor provides, doesn't mean that each student is gonna latch on to every single word. In right. fact, I provide um, a suggested list. Here, these are words you might need to converse. Pick the ones that work for you or you think that you might use again. I mean, it takes the pressure off. Um, We as United Statesians are so fearful of making mistakes, especially in language. And um, I try very hard to take away all of those um, apprehensions for my students and just and just get it out there because that's the fun for me as well is interacting with another human being. Yeah. And the stories when they come back and say, Oh, I, I spoke with them. Um, I spoke with a custodian in school. We had a great conversation about, about food or, or whatever. And that's exciting. And that leads to, um, into more conversation. The more you speak, the better you get, the better you get, the more you speak, you know? Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And it evolves. I mean, you, you, like you said, you you will continue to make mistakes. and, And goodness, we make mistakes with our English language. So, why wouldn't we make mistakes with a second language that we're a novice at? And, Um, But but at the end of the day, you know, of course, my background being in communication, the mistakes are only important insofar as that you're not able to accomplish, you know, establishing a relationship with somebody else. And um, and what I find is even if I'm talking with someone that speaks no English and I speak very little Spanish, you can still have a relational opportunity to be friendly and to, you know, get to know that person at least on some level, even if it's just a quick interaction in a store, um, you know, smiling is still nice, (laughs) you know,
1: (laughs) should be a requirement actually. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and, and that is part of the fun of it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I I don't know that I've ever viewed it as a challenge, but I've always viewed it as um, something that's fun to do. And, um, maybe that's naive, but I think that if more of us approach traveling and interacting with other cultures in that way, um, and, and, um, and, and really embrace that as, as something that's fun and, and, um, a great opportunity to learn, um, then it would be, um, a lot more productive for us. Jennifer, um, what's your next steps?
1: Well, you know, I think I have, um, five books in the hopper right now mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, that I'm, um, I'm waiting on a student art. I, I happen to feature um, student artists of, of any age, you know, not professional artists on the covers of my books. So I'm waiting for those covers to, to come in and to publish those. Um, a business partner and I have um, are in the process and ready to launch a new website where um, people can access our books um, digitally on the site and with awesome audio by um, different native speakers. And that has been produced fantastically. So to allow for that, you know, a little bit uh, different experience. So we're very excited about that. And um, I am getting ready to start the second semester, as I know you all mm-hmm. are over there. And um, and I'm hard at work on uh, my first novel in English as well.
0: Ah, very good. Congratulations. Uh, when's Thank your you website, very much. When's your website going to launch?
1: I think. Um, well, we're we're ironing out the kinks now, and um, as you know from from my apprehension with this technology, I'm not the best with tech, so um, it's taking a little bit longer than we anticipated. But hopefully by the end of this month, oh, okay. um, and it's called Digilangua, and so uh, digilangua.com, and um, people can can look that up. Hopefully by the end of the month, it'll be live.
0: Well, listen, um, why don't you send me the URL um, that you're going to use? And, and of course, we'll be happy to link that in the text um, that oh, accompanies the podcast. And because um, we have a link right now that goes to a list of your books, but of course it would be far um, better to have it go to your website. And um, I'm guessing by the time listeners are listening to this, it will be towards the time that you're about ready to launch. So the timing would work out great.
1: Oh, that's, that will be perfect. And, you know, we, my per- business partner and I, and I welcome, you know, any, any questions, um, and, and throw out some topic ideas. I am always looking for, um, you know, what kinds of stories that need to be written next. So, um, I, I thank you for for promoting for promoting the um, the new website and my my own website and and for having me today it was a, it was a really fun conversation Scott thank you
0: yeah it was very fun to have you on I'm glad we um, were finally able to get it get it taken <laughs> care of um, and I wish you the best of luck with your um, upcoming books and your website and um, I'm excited to um, you know I think that learning about other cultures is, is to me um, very edifying and I hope that people will use your books as a vehicle to start that journey if they've not already, um, or to um, increase um, their ability to have empathy for other cultures if they have started that journey. I think that's very important. So um, best of luck to you as you start your semester and finish your projects out.
1: Oh, and to you as well, to everyone there. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You bet. My guest today was Jennifer who, um who is a language teacher at UConn Stanford, um, uh, but also is an author of many books um, that helps people learn about other cultures through characters and stories. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through many, if not all of the popular podcasting apps that you would find on your phone, laptop, or iPad, or other devices. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast and give us a direct message if you would like to um, ask a question or propose a topic. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titchworth, your host. Have a great day.